If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with Midi Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at Midi understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And Midi can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. Midi clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Dire Wave 
Dire Wave. Three. Dire Wave 3. Science comes out of medieval universities. This may be totally lost on modern people, but no, actually modern science comes out of universities. Guess where universities come from? Byzantium. What is the theology of Byzantium? Orthodoxy. The longest running empire, the most successful economic empire in the history of the world was Orthodox. It was Byzantium. So we give the universities, we give civilization, all these things come from the treasures of orthodoxy. So I would say that we can prove that our morals, our theology is from God. I'm not saying that just because of history it proves it. I was just rebutting certain points that he made about history. We've actually built civilizations. Canon law is very important in the history of law. 
history of law theory. Universities come from orthodoxy. So um, when we reject dialectics and dialectical tensions and the presuppositions of dialectics, which are the very root of all, uh, all Gnostic systems, are all built on dialectical tensions and the, and the assumptions of dialectics, all the way back to Plato, when we reject that, what's, what we're left with is a unique revealed anthropology and a, a unique metaphysic, a unique worldview, a unique ethic that is not just in theory, it's actually been proved and stamped into history in the longest empire in the world. Welcome. Can you guys hear me? Hello. Do we have any sound? Hmm. Yo. I got I think you guys can hear me. I know you can't. I know. Hello. Oh, hello. Yeah. Okay, yeah. There was a a pop up for join with auto audio that I didn't. Ah, uh, okay. 
Alright, should we have cams on or is it just gonna be your right. face on you the stream? You can do whatever you want. You're you're on the stream in the box in the All corner. Right. Dave, we'd like to see your August. face. Yeah. What's up? Check it out. I just I woke up an hour ago, so uh well, I got the gamer face. We appreciate <laughs> you waking up to do this. Yeah, of course. Man, it's just that I just woke up like head, two hours head, or this phones is me. Kind of, yeah. Hey, mm. Melissa, can I trade your headphones for these? I don't like these ones. <laughs> it makes Welcome. you look like a construction worker. We're all live, by the way. Hello. So. <laughs> oh, nice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're like, hold on a second. I'm going to put on your head headsets. That helps me do theology and philosophy better. Welcome, everybody. Tonight, we're going to cover uh, originism. We're not going to be covering just the controversial doctrine of apocatastasis. That's usually what people think of when they hear the term uh, originism. They think, oh, this equals universalism. Um, that's only one of the areas of his theology that we're going to cover, discuss, and explain why it's problematic. And not just problematic, but uh, condemned at least three times over in ecumenical councils. So... We've got my origin works right here next to me, and I've got my uh, all my secondary scholarship too. So, um, David, I would like to bring in eventually your video that you did too, because you kind of hit on one of the key points that you know people like David Bentley Hart uh, misunderstand or uh, don't know what they're talking about when we talk about nature and person and the mode uh, of nature and that kind of stuff. Created hypostasis. Um, but uh, how do you guys want to start it? What do you think is the best uh, route to go here? Uh, I think the best route to start is basically, I think it will be through the ecumenical councils, kind of just hammering the point home that he has been condemned. And okay. that should kind of be, that alone should be the end of the debate for a lot of orthodox and right. generally anyone that's accepting the ecumenical council. So... The, or, the anti-originist argument goes something like, he was condemned in the Fifth Ecumenical Council. He was one of the people anatomatized. And then the, the counter-argument to that is that that's a later edition. They give some reasons. One of the reasons is that there was an originist in the council. This is a very bad argument. Uh, it's a bad argument because you had uh, Nestorius being condemned in front of Nestorians or Nestorianizers uh, in Chalcedon, for example. You had people that were very quick to abandon him. But there is still, you can still say in some way, some Nestorianizers in Chalcedon that still went on with an anatomatization. So that's a bad argument on its face. Uh, that's That will be my first response. And then you have generally, it's a very, it's a historical case that is very difficult to make in general. Another big problem is that you're basically saying that any ecumenical council, right? This is an ecumenical council that we had for, for 14 centuries. And if we had the wrong version for 14 centuries, then that begs the question, how do we know any of our ecumenical councils? If, well, if this the, aspect... That's the point I was just going to make, too. Is yeah, I'm sorry for... These are received, and <laughs> if, um, if we got to throw that out, then everything's out. Exactly. Um, if that can be thrown out, out, everything can be thrown out. Mm -hmm. Everything. So aside from being a difficult historical case to make, it's just goes against how we understand the communical councils. The other main problem is that this is not just the fifth council. 
the sixth and the seventh councils, when they start with summarizing the previous councils, they kind of include what happened in the previous councils. And both the sixth and the seventh, uh, when they summarize the fifth council, they say origin was anatomatized in this council, right? So we anatomize origin, we anatomize Theodore of Mopsuesti, another person that was anatoma in that council. And um, so it's not just the fifth council, right? The argument is not just the fifth, it's the sixth and the seventh too. If the fifth was a later edition, well, it's the sixth and the seventh disagree on that, right? Another argument I want to make in general from the historical perspective of the lives of the saints, we look at St. Photius's Bibliotheca, and when he uh, reviews, the, because Bibliotheca is literally just a book review of several different works, several different books, one of the books he reviews is the Acts of the Fifth Council, and he says origin was condemned here, right? So St. Photius, who is a very erudite scholar, he's not just some, some guy. He's a very erudite scholar. He's he knows about this kind of stuff. Well, he's if also there was one of the pillars of orthodoxy. Exactly. So, if there was an addition, he will be the first person to know in orthodox history. But he himself understands Origen is a heretic. He says Origen is a heretic when he reviews. Um, I forgot. I forgot. The, but he reviews one of Origen's works, and he basically says this is blasphemous. Right? Look at Origen's blasphemies in this work he produced. He calls Origen a heretic. You look at the. Um, I believe this is from the spiritual mutus of St. Basil the New. I don't remember exactly, but I do remember talking about this in a video on Archbishop Alexander Golitsyn. I make this point where we have uh, one of, in the lives of the saints, one of the saints, again, this is St. Basil the New. I believe I might be wrong. You can check out that video on Archbishop Alexander uh, for more details. You have in some lives of the saints, people saying origin is straight up in hell so he's not just condemned these people like in the lives of our saints he's not just some condemned oh you know he was wrong no 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 he was these people even say he was in hell right and just that entire patristic witness in orthodoxy testifies that origin is a condemned heretic just historically speaking of course there's a theology side to it that we're get, getting into it that we'll get into why was he even condemned in the fifth council what happened we can all explain that in the stream, but just in, I think the best place to start is just generally kind of explaining the history related to origin. And I just want to kind of consider this argument that people are going to use. Oh, but there were some saints that quoted and cited origin. And I think this is an argument of its own. That's not an argument. The saints have quoted a lot of different people. They have cited a lot of different people to prove their point. Just because they do it with origin does not suddenly mean that origin is one of them. We have saints that quote Aristotle when they're trying to make their point. That doesn't mean Aristotle is a church father, right? So that's also a bad argument. You'll notice this. Wait, in hold on a second. What did origin. you just say? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Roman Catholics will have a problem with saying Aristotle is not a church father. <laughs> By the way, David, uh, let's just play devil's advocate. Um, what would you say if somebody says, well, I mean, he was condemned posthumously. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. 
Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. It's not fair. He didn't have a chance uh, to kind of defend himself. I'm sure you've heard this objection before. Yeah. You can take this one if you want. Snack can yes, take it. He's more. Yeah, go snack. So, um, yeah, but before everything, we should maybe start by just giving a rough introduction of who Origin was, because uh, some people might not be aware. So, Origin was a very influential early Christian writer. Uh, he's actually the son of a, of a martyr. Uh, and he was, uh, he was from Alexandria, and he produced some very popular works um, um, against the pagans, for example, Contra Celsus. And... He was controversial during his lifetime as well, and and a bit later we're going to cover, uh, you know, the pre Fifth Council's um, arguments of the saints against Origen. Um, yeah, but one of the arguments that is brought up is that Origen died. Uh, Origen is a very early figure, and and the Fifth Council is centuries away from Origen. And some people brought up the argument that, oh, you cannot condemn condemn someone posthumously. You cannot condemn someone after their death. Well, these people should simply read the council. The council brings up the fact that um, we can see historically heretics being condemned after their death. Actually, they bring up um, Augustine quite a bit uh, by saying that uh, St. Augustine and the Church of Africa uh, actually had a habit of condemning people uh, after the death for the writings. Uh, they also bring up the fact that um, the Robust Council of Ephesus II, um, which condemns St. Flavian, uh, was overturned. So they make a case negatively as well. They say, oh, Chalcedon actually managed to uh, exculpate um, St. Flavian. So the opposite would be possible. Um, and there are also other examples, you know, in church history, um, Macedonius, Apollinarius, and so on, were, were controversial during their lives, but only condemned after their death. And again, we should also think, shouldn't we be able to condemn people after their death? Does that mean that you can literally write heresy, propagate it, as long as you don't get caught before you're on your deathbed? <laughs> That's a bit too easy, right? It's ridiculous. Yeah. And actually, um, another argument that is brought up, is the idea that Origen's works are condemned, but not Origen himself. Yeah. Uh, that's a very common argument. Uh, and to that, I will simply answer with the, uh, the Sixth Council, because the Sixth Council actually makes a distinction between condemning some uh, someone and condemning someone's works. Only they don't do it for Origen. <laughs> they do it for, uh, I think, uh, Theodore of Mopsuetia. But no, no, no. They not. they don't do it for Theodor. They do it for Theodoret of Cyrus. Uh, Theodoret of Cyrus. He's yeah. not condemned as a person, but his writings, anti-Cyrillian writings, are condemned. Yeah. Yeah. So act actually, you know, like this distinction exists, but you do not see it in the Sixth Council for Origin. You do not see it in the Fifth Council for Origin. You do not see it in the Seventh Council. You do not see it in any of the condemnations that we that we sing any of the anathema. You don't see it in. Uh, um, in the later writers, you know, Saint John of Damascus uh, condemns uh, con con condemns uh, these, these ideas of origin. 
Now, doesn't the sixth and seventh economic council also confirm the previous councils too? Always. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. So keep that in mind. If you have a problem with it, <laughs> you have to throw. Yeah, if you have, yeah, if you have a problem, that's kind of like the point that I was going for. Is is if you if you make this argument, you're not just throwing the fifth council out. You're throwing the sixth and the seventh out. You're basically saying these these councils are not legitimate either, and we can just change them right retroactively yeah it's also to uh one of the the sophistry arguments that comes up around this they'll say well they ha uh, had a wrong doctrine of originism they were condemning something that wasn't really origins doctrine but really this also undercuts the idea that somehow we have better access than the saints had at that time and it still uh means that the, the ecumenical councils were all wrong because so you have three su successive councils that basically didn't know what originism was made a huge gigantic blunder because it plays uh, very heavily for example into uh the condemnation in the confession of saint sophronius which is accepted at the sixth council so so you've got um a lot of you know serious problems for the notion of dogma uh, but by the way a lot of the liberal academics that uh, are pushing originism don't believe in dogma anyway so they don't care <laughs> they're, they're quite happy to say yeah there's no dogma council's error so what yeah maybe we should cover the early history of origin and how it was re uh, received because yeah as david said one of the big arguments is to say that many of our saints appreciated origin um actually sampled some uh, some parts of uh, uh of origin works um the cappadocians for example mm -hmm. were big on originism uh, not originism but origin himself they would actually um i think saint basil wrote a philokalia of origin uh and that's an argument like oh he inspired someone well origin inspired many people right with many different results origin is one of the best preserved early writers. He was very influential. He was from Alexandria at the time where Alexandria was shining the brightest. Um, and uh, I would like to, to just use the words of um, of Gennadios of Constantinople. You know, when he looks back during the Council of Florence, he says, the Westerners writers say, where origin was good, no one was better. Whereas uh, where it was bad, no one is worse. Or Asian divines, so the Easterners, says that on the one hand origin is a whetstone of a soul but on the other hand is the fount of four doctrines both are right is blendingly defended christianity wonderfully expanded scripture and wrote a noble exhortation to martyrdom but he was also the father of arianism and worst of all said that hellfire would not last forever so you can see that he was an apologist he, he had important writings inspired many great people but also some others like arianism uh, has been linked to some doctrines of origin which clearly teaches subordinationism in some of his writings. That doesn't mean that the saints that, uh, that were inspired by him took that specifically in their doctrine. At least St. Basil is very famous for saying that we should be like um, uh, like bees, we should take what is good in, uh, uh, in all these writers. So that's not an argument, and we can see that there are counterexamples in Holy Church history. Origen uh, was controversial during his lifetime, and and there was uh, early um, crises about originism. Most notably, the first originist crisis, uh, where the person who took the lead against the originists was 
uh, a bishop of Alexandria who was very violent and violently persecuted them. And that's why some originists were protected and sheltered uh, because of this violence. But that doesn't take back the fact that you had condemnations of his doctrines that were accepted widely in Alexandria, that were accepted uh, in Rome even, you know. Uh, I think the Pope of the time actually accepted uh, condemnations against Origen. And this crisis left a sour taste in the mouth of the East, because uh, especially Constantinople, because it ended up uh, with the Synod of the Oak, the position of, uh, of St. John Chrysostom. But that, that still shows that there was a problem with Originism at the time from the place where Origen lived, you know, in Alexandria. If you look uh, a, a bit later, you, uh, I mean, during this crisis, you have saints actually accusing Origen. You have, um, uh, I think, Ep Epiphanes of uh, Salamis. You have many saints leading the charge the other way. And it was pretty much understood at the time, especially in Alexandria. And remember, orthodoxy is universal. And Alexandria is, is really one of the big centers of orthodoxy. So we, we also need to take their, um, their take into account. Um, if you look at the testimonies that are brought up against Dioscorus by the Alexandrian people during the Council of Chalcedon, they also, whenever they, they want to pinpoint, a, they, they want to say that someone is a heretic but cannot really pinpoint the heresy, they will say he's an originist. You had people, uh, I think the nephew of Saint Cyril, saying Dioscorus embraced the heresy of origin. So he already was. Uh, in, infamous at the time and even some saints that were inspired by him we can see that in the surroundings the originists were causing problems I was reading the life of St. Paul as the other day and St. Paul was um, uh, a disciple of uh, of Jerome St. Jerome who himself was a disciple of Didymus who himself was a disciple of Origen and St. Paula was a very, uh, very learned woman. And she still complains about the originists causing problems and, and spreading heresy. Yeah, and, and by the way, the uh, there are, the, there's another argument that's made. Oh, he was never condemned in his day. That's not true. Uh, right, uh, St. Um, I think it's um, Optatus. Uh, one of the saints in his day, I, just, uh, I was just looking at it the other day. I posted in the in the Discord, and I've already forgot who it was, but it's either um, um, Optinus or Optidus, one of the saints that was contemporary right after his death uh, had looked at his writings and realized that it was um, heretical, that it did have a lot of heretical ideas in it. But it's important to note that it, it really takes a long time for his works to circulate and for people to really kind of see what was going on. So it's not like... You can just do this move of, well, why didn't everybody just, you know, right at, off the bat condemn him right away? Well, this is the ancient world. It takes time for texts to circulate. It takes time for councils to look at these works and to deal with the controversy. So uh, I think we have to keep that in mind because, uh, you know, you'll hear this objection all the time. Like, well, wasn't he condemned in his day? Well, actually, he was. He was, and he was condemned a bit later during the first Origins crisis and and the second one during the fifth council, and then we can attest it. There's, there's a line of people condemning him. And again, we should really look at, um, at what Alexandria says, you know, because it's the home turf. You know? If you are hated, and if people quote you as uh, the, you know, 
generic heretic, you know, whenever they want to say that someone is a heretic, yeah. if they associate you with with, uh, with him, it's probably a problem. And that was also one of the concerns of Saint Justinian during the the Fifth Council, was to reunite uh, the theology that is universal. We do not so have just a Western did you say theology. It was the contemporary. I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to find it. I can't remember. Saint Optatus. Or That's a, I think it's yeah. Um, it's a lesser-known saint, but he was he he condemned Origen right after uh, Origen had passed away. Um, yeah, I think I and on the, I'm trying to find it. And on the topic of Saint Justinian, uh, because this is going to be a relevant book now. The unfortunate thing about this book is that this is a pretty rare book. It costs me a lot uh, to buy this, and I think there's only one left in Amazon. This is called Defense well, of Culture in the people. East. Don't show people that. You'll have somebody breaking into your house to, oh, yeah. to steal it. To steal, to steal valuable treasures. But this book, Defense of Council of the East by Patrick Gray, covers the distinct Christologies at the time of the uh, Fifth Council, right? Before the time of the Fifth Council. Now, there are different Christological positions in the church. You had basically people that rejected Council and the Monophysites. You had Nestorianizers. You had Orthodox Kyrillic Chalcedonians. And the fourth party, which a lot of people miss, but this book doesn't, is the Originist party, represented by people like, uh, now this is debatable whether he's an Originist, but Leontes of Byzantium and people like that, I think he is because Leontes of Jerusalem, his contemporary basically calls him one. Um, but Originistic Christology was also a factor in that time, and as a system, it looked very similar to Nestorianism because it spoke of two hypostases in Christ, but the it's also a mixture of Eutychianism in a sense, where the Two hypotheses, the two natures basically come together and form this new hypostasis, this new tertium quid, that's the indefinable third thing. And a lot of, yeah, a lot of originists basically had that kind of a Christology. And so when you had people running amok like this, when you had people kind of subverting Chalcedon like this and understanding it in this way, it seems very, very plausible that St. Justine will look at it and say, well, if we're going to be handling the Monophysites and the Nestorians, we have to be handling these guys too, right? So it's not just something that, oh, like a lot of people think, oh, he just didn't like Origen and he just wants to get rid of him. He just, it wasn't something random like that. It was yeah. something that affected that specific time. And, uh, and again, a lot of Originists themselves had a very wrong christology that needed to be refuted. yeah i've got the quote and right it, here one of the quotes by the way it's saint methodius i found it it's uh, saint methodius had a comprehensive philosophical mm -hmm. edu education he was an important theologian and prolific author his works can only be assigned chronologically to the end of the third century he became uh, of special importance in the history of theological literature in that he combated the various erroneous views of origin particularly he attacked origin's doctrine that man's body, the resurrection, would not be the same body that he had in this life. Also, he found the idea of the wor world's eternality as an erroneous notion. Now, that's going to come up later when we look at uh, the eternal fall and eternal world. Mm -hmm. Genesis, kinesis, stasis uh, is what we're going to be looking at here. But that's St. Methodius is who was right after Origen and did condemn his errors at the time. Um, I would add that if you have the shaft set, you do have uh, older you know, translations of multiple works of origin 
And one example would be in the commentary on John uh, in um, chapter 6, Origins Commentary on John. Let me see which book. Book 2, chapter 6, um, Origins states that we do believe that there is a second beside the Father. He being the same as the Father, while manifestly distinct, is drawn between the Spirit and the Son in this passage. And he's talking about... Uh, the maker of all things, all things were made through him, through Christ. So this is the sense in which Origen understands that through, made through Christ. He says, whenever we speak, whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. We consider, therefore, that there are three hypostases, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And at the same time, we believe that nothing is uncreated except the Father. So there's going to be a lot of debate and confusion about in what sense uh, Origen speaks of Christ as subordinate, but also as God, which would seem to suggest uh, basically a Hellenic chain of being type of philosophy where there are created gods or gods that have a beginning in time. And uh, Origen will go into, of course, great depths to utilize Hellenic philosophy, uh, uh, you know, the presuppositions of Hellenism to try to explain that while at the same time holding to the Plotinian definition of simplicity, that distinction always entails composition or division. And we'll see that here in a moment with the citations and first principles from Origen. But um, I would also just mention in passing, one of the reasons why Origen was so important was that he had all of these biblical commentaries. So uh, he was early, an early exegete. He did the hexapla. He was important in uh, you know uh, textual criticism at that time. He was one of the first textual critics. But, uh, for example, in his commentary on Matthew, uh, when he, if you look at uh, his comments on um, Peter, Peter's not the rock. <laughs> the keys are possessed by all the Episcopate. Um, if you look over at his discussion of clergy, he mentions married clergy. If you look his dis at his discussion of um, the divorce of Israel, that's the whole chapter that he wrote in his commentary on Matthew. If you have the shaft set, this is on page 507. Uh, and so he teaches preterism, right? So he teaches many, many correct things, and he was in many ways insightful. And I think that that's the the draw, right, that was so powerful at the time was that he had a grasp of the languages, of philosophy, uh, and and did a kind of apologetics against, you know, the pagans and the Hellenists. So that's why he was so influential, but again, that's not enough to be orthodox, right? It's not enough just to have some good arguments, to have a, a lot of books, to have a lot of academic knowledge um, if you depart in any of the crucial key doctrines. And of course, we know that the resurrection of the body, creation of the world ex nihilo, um, uh, the, the homoousios doctrine, doctrine, excuse me, the doctrine that Christ is uh, of the same essence as the Father, he's of the fa Father's essence then, uh, you know, if we're departing from those things, then we're departing from, uh, you know, the basic understanding of things in the creed. Jay, notice that uh, Origen's double procession um, is really the same problem that comes up uh, with the filioque over and over again. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 
91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older, but if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause, and MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. For the same reasons, I'd argue. Yeah, Radigowitz uh, has a good section on origin. And so I made uh, uh, several notes on origin has a unique doctrine of simplicity that's uh, you have to understand Clement of Alexandria's doctrine of divine simplicity, where there's a kind of, uh, uh, according to what Lossky was saying, there's this identification of the father with what is apophatic, right? The father is unknowable. The father is the um, beyond being essence. And then the son in Clement's theology kind of works as the bridge by which we uh, have, it's almost like he sees the son like the, the icon of an unknowable essence, right? So there's not Trinitarianism, as uh, uh, Lossky notes in Clement. There is a kind of uh, Platonism or a modification of Platonism that's not Trinitarian. It's more like gradations of being. So what we think of in terms of orthodoxy as apophatic theology that's applicable to the essence of Father, Son, and Spirit, really what Clement is doing is identifying that unknowable essence with Father and fatherhood. And so Christ becomes this bridge by which we can know the divine, but it still seems to imply some kind of subordination. Um, I'm not saying that it's exactly clear what Clement's view is. I'm not a Clement scholar. I'm just going by what uh, Galwitz says on Clement and what Lasky said on Clement. But the point is that you get a, a modification from these two guys, from Clement and Origen, about different notions of what unity is, different ideas about what's called simple unity, complex unity, relative unity. And uh, Gawitz is very clear that the, the doctrine that Origen seems to hold is that multiplicity in any sense is based on creatures. So all multiplicity is in regard to, is bound up with the Logos. So there would no, be no multiplicity at all if there was not a logos, since the sun contains all the forms and that this is a real multiplicity, he argues that the sun has to be in some lesser status because remember, the assumption here is that unity is higher. There's some higher level uh, status of unity and um, um, the identity of goodness and being, right? So it's very Plotinian. That is the essence of God. That is the father. And so he notes that, Galwitz notes that, the doctrine of simplicity in origin is the same as uh, Eunomius's doctrine. This is page uh, 63 in Galwitz's thesis. So this is called the identity thesis, right? The idea that 
similar to modal collapse, right? That the names that we predicate of God are essentially all identical and they're identical to the essence. For origin, the Father is the essence. The Father is he who is. The Father has the real proper title of God. And that is identical in a way to the essence of God. So Father equals essence. Nature is person there. And this passes, this is the eunomian doctrine, uh, Galwitz says. God is identical to being. Being is identical to goodness. And that is the Father. Now, is the Son God? Yes, but he's a lesser God. And this will influence, again, as you pointed out, all the subordinationists afterwards, right? Arianism and so forth. Hence why in the Gospel of John, he says that we don't recognize any uncreated except the person of the Father. So everything else is on, on a sort of lower tier chain of being. Right? And this is fundamental to understanding Hellenic philosophy, dialectics, and chain of being. So the idea that there's there couldn't be real distinctions, as it, Plotinus says in the Aeneid, distinction entails composition and division. That's a quote from the Aeneids. Uh, I can tell you exactly where it is, too. It's, it's Aeneid. If you guys want to go ahead and keep talking, you can. I've got a bunch, yeah. I've got a bunch uh, of stuff, volume, parts should, should and stuff I, I'm going to mm -hmm. show you. Go ahead. Um, yeah, to, to support that point, I believe Sysinski also espouses him as like one of the earliest, like um, one of the earliest defenders of the filioque. Isn't that true? Mm -hmm. Like he, one of the earliest proponents of the filioque right, doctrine from the, the same commentary. Found, yeah. It's found, it's yeah. bound up with simplicity, exactly. Yeah, and um, in in the same commentary, he says, um, we must inquire whether if, if it be true that all things were created through him, and he says the Holy Spirit also was created through him, right? So this is one of one of the things that he says in the commentary of uh, the Gospel of John. John. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a very early attestation. Good news for Roman Catholics. There's an early attestation for Filioque. The problem is it's a heretic that's uh, defending <laughs> the Filioque. So I don't know if they're going to, I don't know if it's a W or L for them. But yeah, uh, there's there's that factor i think in regarding to divine simplicity this also affects his view uh on not only free will but also like the afterlife right yeah we'll get uh, to that yeah these are both these are all connected so should we like kind of go for go about the should we just deal with like the very vacky views of origin like how we become spheres <laughs> yeah mention like the, the really dumb stuff i will add to the by the way it's yeah. uh it's aenea 3 2 16 where plotinus says distinction is opposition so that's fundamental to neoplatonism nothing i'm saying is controversial about neoplatonism we have of course uh you know normal uh standard scholarship like rt wallace's book where where he will note uh, on page 104 that the, com the comparisons between originism and platonism and so just to kind of lay out the groundwork of what the chief problem is is that it's plato right platonism neoplatonism uh these are the the presuppositions of origin and originism and so the big takeaway here is that it's not about just an issue of universal salvation or apocatostasis that's just one area of a vast system that is wrong-headed and problematic. And the Sixth Council will actually have a four-page condemnation of the entire system of origin. And that's why we can't accept originism. But let's go through, you guys do the main kind of dumb things. And then uh, we're going to go from Genesis, Kinesis, Stasis. And we're going to compare Maximus, Augustine, and Origen and the different views that they had on these, on these ideas. Yeah, I think we should start with soteology, because 
as you said, the problem is the understanding of unity of origin. And because of that, eschatology cannot include these distinctions. So everything is a coming back to the original the state. Yeah, yeah by the way, uh, if you read the Dunamis book, um, Power of God, Michael Rene Barnes, um, Origen taught that the Father and the Son are autotheos. So. Page one fourteen. So, um, oh, does he actually? The son is autotheos. Origen has taken pains to establish the real distinction between the father and the son, and that the father and the son are both autotheos. So, um, you know, the people that go around saying this who don't even know basic Nicene Christology, that you know, the Synodicon, of course, condemns the idea that the father does not communicate both the hypostasis and the divinity of the son in generating. Yeah. If it's like if you want to, we can just read the fifteen anatomas against origin because it's like outlines yeah, got, the I've very got, back of years. Yeah. yeah, and we should can we kind take, of summarize. Should we it. take? Uh, should we go uh, one, one, one? <laughs> like take turns. Yeah, let's take <laughs> turns. Like to, to introduce his sociology is that he believes that anything needs to come back to an original state. You know, and that's why you get the, the idea of spheres because you know it's supposed to show perfection. But um, since everything needs to go back to an original state, and there's no longer distinctions, you have some ideas that you will see be reminiscent of uh, beatific vision. You know, uh, it will for ex uh, at the end of the day, you will for example say that um, we do not sort of have this um, multi multiplicity and individuality because you being a partaker of God, which is something we, we, we believe, all Christians believe that, you know, uh, from the very beginning, Irenaeus said, um, God became man so that man can become God. Uh, but here it's becoming God in this of the essence. And the, the body is completely annihilated mm -hmm. uh, in Origin's worldview. Uh, and that's why you have, uh, you have the idea that um, the eschaton is just going to be a psychic experience. Like a beatific vision. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's t let's take each one, each person take a anathema. <laughs> uh, I can start with the first one, and okay, one of you guys gets it. Yeah. Yeah. First Matt, one. Okay, three, and then J four. <laughs> yeah. Let's go ahead. We got uh, a lot to get through, what... so let's just go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead and do it. Let's yeah. Yeah. Let's go. The first anathema: If anyone asserts the fabulous pre-existence of sort fabulous fable right not that it's good fabulous pre-existence of souls and shall assert the monstrous restoration which follows from it let him be anathema, oh, that's anathema. The first anathema. <laughs> if anyone oh, you take is... the long one you take number two father yeah it is the long one uh, if anyone unless you're a scholar from Fordham or something right that's the, <laughs> yeah that's yeah the then you're okay right. yeah that <laughs> So this is number two. If anyone shall say that the creation of all reasonable things includes only intelligence without bodies and altogether immaterial, having neither number or name, so that there is unity between them all by identity of substance, force and energy, and by their union with and knowledge of God, the word, but that no longer desiring the sight of God, they gave themselves over to worse things, each one following his own inclinations. And they have taken bodies more or less suitable and have received names 
or among heavenly powers, there is a difference of names, as there is also a difference of bodies. And then some became and are called cherubims, other seraphims, and principalities, and dominions, dominations, thrones, angels, and so he, he's obviously listening the, the nine hierarchies and many others of the heavenly orders and let, let's see, as there may be, let him be anathema. Just as a small note, um, when Leontes of Jerusalem critiques Leontes of Byzantium's originism, he actually basically says, are you going to become an angel? Like, are you going to be an enlightened angel? Or these people think they are going to be enlightened angels as like a kind of like making fun of them. Uh, so this uh, so Origen is still believed it at that time, this nonsense. So notice in here too is the idea of unity as perfection and any type of distinction is, and multiplicity is a falling away from perfection. Yeah. That theme's in expressed in that which is anathematized. Yeah. The third one is a bit goofy. If anyone shall say that the suns and moon and stars are reasonable beings and that they have only become what they are because they turn towards evil, let him be anathema. <laughs> All right, Jay, you got number four. Uh, uh, you, know you, what you guys read these. Actually, I've got Sophronius. You know what actually might yeah. be linked Ready. to number three? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's actually linked to... Uh, because remember, the, the angels are associated with sun, the sun and stars. So it's kind of a plane mm -hmm. up um, on the same thing of two. That uh, That's a, a, the fall. Um, and the, it, the angelic order is part yeah, of the The fall. thing is, yeah. like, there's clearly Neoplatonism. I don't know if you mm -hmm. have time to read all of them. Because I'm not quite yeah, wrong, yeah. It's the idea that you have like this primal state that's just the essence of god and then yes. things fall things go apart and and that's where you have this idea of apocatastasis that later will be brought up all restoring yeah. to come mm -hmm. back to its original form where there's unity of of essence substance force even energy. the devil god. even yep. the devil mm -hmm. uh if any i'm reading the fourth anatoma if anyone shall say that the reasonable creatures in whom the divine love had grown cold have been hidden in gross bodies such as ours and have been called men while those who have attained the lowest degree of wickedness have shared cold and obscure bodies and are becoming called demons and evil spirits let him be anathema if this is number five if anyone shall say that a psychic condition has come from an angelic or archangelic state. And moreover, that a, demi uh, a demoniac. Demoniac. Sorry, yeah, my eyes. I get my... Um, and a human condition has come from psychic condition and that from a human state, they may become, again, angels and demons. And that each order of heavenly virtues is either all from those below or from those above and below, let it be anathema. Yeah, six, if anyone shall say that there is a twofold race of demons, of which the one includes the souls of men and the other the superior spirits who fell to this, and that all of the uh, all of the number of reasonable beings there is but one which has remained unshaken in the love and contemplation of God, and that the Spirit is become Christ and the King of all reasonable beings, 
that he has created, all the bodies which exist in heaven on earth and between heaven and earth, and that the world which was in itself elements more ancient than itself and which exists by themselves, uh, such as dryness, damp, heat, and cold, and the image to which it was formed was so formed, and that the most holy and consubstantial Trinity did not create the world, but was created by the working intelligence, which is more ancient than the world, and which communicates to its being, let him be anathema. So that's the thing to Genesis. I think you could comment on this, Jay, uh, on um, origin view of, uh, of creation, maybe. Because that, that's, that's a problem that often comes up, and that's so you have people liking origin quite a bit, actually. Right, so um, at the Sixth Council, you have the acceptance of uh, the confession of St. Sophronius of Jerusalem, right? Very uh, influential. If you, if you know the study of St. Maximus' theology, then you're familiar with St. Sophronius. They have the same doctrines. And St. Sophronius um, has a confession of faith that he put forth that was accepted, not just in, in relation to Christology, but in terms of the doctrine of creation. And so from the outset, it rejects the doctrine of any over-allegorization or um, denial of the historicity of Adam, Eve, and Genesis. And so it's called the profession of faith in creation. And it's, it talks about the Trinity. It talks about the Triune God creating the world. And it goes on to say that <clears throat> uh, this had a beginning in time. It's ex nihilo. This is, this is all against origin, by the way, explicitly. So it goes on to say, if uh, anyone denies the creation of souls, if anyone uh, affirms that there was a higher realm from which we fell into bodily existence, uh, if anyone affirms that there is um, an eternal uh, uh, possibility of falls, um, it says that origin is, if anyone uh, holds to origin's doctrine of the resurrection, all of these things are, are said to be uh, origin's condemned fables. Uh, and so Origen is actually condemned for denying the existence of a historical Eden and a historical fall and a historical Adam and Eve. And so there's uh, four pages that lists not just the condemnation of the Pocatastasis, but the system of Origenism from its genesis to its uh, end goal to its eschatology. So this is going to also play into one of the problems in the Origenist system, which is the idea that man's Beatitude is in perfect stasis. It is the intellect perceiving the the true essence of uh, one or unity or, or the monad in that eschatological uh, state. And so that leads to, or it just is another version of Platonism. And so that's another reason that we have to also look at the whole system is, is that it's not just a doctor, an error on creation or the body. It's an error on uh, Trinitarian theology, Christology, uh, anthropology and eschatology. And this is what leads, I mean, his doctrine of dialectical doctrine of free will, it's what's going to lead to um, his uh, heretical notion of, of the eschaton, right? So he, he thinks that if you define free will by the choice between good and evil, you've always got to have evil, and the possibility of choosing evil, even in the eschaton, and hence eternal recurring falls. Jay, that's a good point too. And conversely, um, for a lot of those that want to um, subscribe to apostasis that you can't just posit that in the working out of such a theory, you're inevitably going to be led to these other heresies, um, particularly uh, 
this kind of eternal, eternal return, um, neoplatonic thought. So I know a lot of people want to go, oh, it sounds so nice. But in order to maintain that, you're going to actually have to embrace other problematic ideas. Yeah. I mean, the reason that they consistently call him a pagan is that it's polytheism, right? I mean, if you read the Barnes treatment about Origen and his view of the sun, there's a real confusion over the sun as power, the sun as a work. So he, he, Origen speaks of a second God. And so that God from God, light from light terminology that uh, the creed uses, that Athanasius uses, it's in Origen. But Origen thinks that there's another God, right? So God from God, light from light is the production of another God, a second God, right? But we don't think that there's two gods. There, there's only one God, namely the Father, right? And who, according to the Synodicon, the, eighth, uh, the seventh council, uh, communicates uh, in generating a son, he communicates that divinity to the son. Uh, and that has to be stressed because that's contrary to Origen's understanding where he actually... Theos of the son. Well, he also says that the, the, the father produces the son by will. He says and it's, it's an eternal act of will that produces a second power or God that is the son that is in a subordinated status. So that's, of course, problematic because we don't think there is an interposition of will. Uh, in terms of the generation of the sun, right? That's the eunomian doctrine. And so eunomius will actually move in a more consistent way from the originist assumptions and presuppositions about simplicity. Origin will repeat the Plotinian doctrine of what simplicity is. It's absolute. It's a, a kind of modal collapse. Any distinction that's real entails composition or division. And so in order to be consistent with the second and third hypostasis, he posits separate substances. Even though it's a, it's God from God, it's a separate God substance. And so there's a confusion there, a, a contradiction. And Eunomius says, well, if we're going to be consistent here, the second person who's an act of will is a work. He's a creature. And notice the line that is being drawn throughout history, right? You see this... Uh, I made a I made a video on it. I think it's the third part of my history of Christian theology series where I talk about the connection between Neoplatonism to Originism to Arianism. All of these systems are connected with each other. You can say that they're basically the, essentially the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Arianism. A lot of people think it's just some new thing that came up. No, it has its history from Originism, and Originism has its history from Neoplatonism, and mm -hmm. you know all of these things are connected with each other. So. Uh, at the end of the day, when we're listening to Eunomius and all of these people, we're just really kind of listening to Origen is kind of the point that I'm trying to make here. And uh, um, and that alone is kind of like a, something that we should kind of ask ourselves, you know, how do they even come up with this kind of stuff if, if there is this connection? How do they go from there? But it's because Origen is not orthodox in this trinity. It's as simple as that. Um, and should we, do we have any more points to make or should we continue with the anatomists? Go ahead with the uh, anatomists. Well. I don't want to get, yeah, yeah. get too sidetracked. Yeah, but in terms of Genesis, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's another reason I will say is why a lot of people like Origen. I kind of want to make this comment is that with Originism, you can have this evolutionist view because it's congruent with Originism. Whereas if you don't have Originism, you don't have that view. You cannot have this kind of uh, that's a good point. Uh, evolutionist view. So that's... Another reason why I will say a lot of people like Origen in the first place, a lot of these people, is because 
they don't believe in creation. They believe in evolution and they want to get away with it by using origin mm -hmm. as this kind of like kind of a sock puppet as a justification. Well, look, origin is a great guy and he basically, you know, according to his view of creation, I can be an evolutionist. And this is the kind of track that they want to go. So it's critical that we re respond to that with, again, more Christian dogmas. You can't be Christian and an originist is what we're going for here. Seventh Anatema uh, says, If anyone shall say that Christ, of whom it is said that he appeared in the form of God, and that he was united before all time with God the Word, and humbled himself in these last days, even to humanity, had, according to their expression, pity upon the diverse falls which had appeared in the spirits united in the same unity, of which he himself is part, and that to restore them he passed through diverse classes, had different bodies and different names, become <coughs> all to all, an angel among angels, a power among powers, has clothed himself in the different classes of reasonable beings with a form corresponding to that class, and finally has taken flesh and blood like ours and has become man for men. If anyone says all this and does not profess that God the word humbled himself and became man, let him be anathema. So I think this means that he is... Uh, saying that Christ became an angel before he became a man is kind of like Notice the expression that getting his at. hierarchy of fall, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. By the way, can a we? Man would be the lowest, so he would have this idea that he has to come and pass through each hierarchy. Yeah. Th this adoption of simplicity hasn't just led to this gradation and platonic, uh, you know, sort of chain of being reality. It, it also has the, the, the chief problem here with creation that Sophronius is just uh, passing over is the, the doctrine of uh, God's uh, creative power being uh, a, a will and a choice to do it ex nihilo. And so creation isn't necessary. It's it's willed to be the case. But if you have the doctrine of simplicity where fatherhood is equated to the divine essence, then has then God has to be a father for all eternity of something or some series. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. ...have created things, right? So this is, this is the problem of eternal creation. This is the originist problem. You have a necessary creation. 
And this is based on not having the essence energy distinction and not making distinction between different types of energies. It leads directly to necessary creation because you can't distinguish between the eternal energies and attributes and the attributes that are only uh, relating to God's will and the created order. So I, obviously all of the attributes and energies are not identical. Um, they're not the same types of works, even though there's one God that's working. So this is just fundamental, the well-known problem, uh, but we have heretics running around that don't even know this and are causing a bunch of problems. Uh, you know, they don't even realize they're about to step into re uh, repeating originism. Yeah. <laughs> Great point. What are we on? Number eight. Yes. If anyone shall not acknowledge that God, the word, of the same substance with the Father and the Holy I'm going to say Spirit because I don't like those. And who was made flesh and became man. One of the Trinity is Christ in every sense of the word, but shall affirm that he is so only in an inaccurate manner and because of that abasement, as they call it, of the intelligence if anyone shall affirm that this intelligence united to God, the word is the Christ in the true sense of the word, while the logos is only called Christ because of this union with intelligence and e converso that the intelligence uh, is only called God because of the logos, let him be anathema. Snick, it's your turn, my boy. So, uh, nine. Yes. If anyone shall say that it was not the divine logos made man uh, by taking an animated body with a rational soul and mind, that he descended into hell and ascended into heaven, but shall pretend that it is a noose which has done this, uh, that noose of which just say in an impulse fashion is Christ properly called, and that he uh, is become so by the knowledge of the monad. So let him be an So there's this kind of like Nestorianism kind of in these anatomists that I'm getting at. Kind of like this distinction. I I feel like um, I think it would be maybe more like um Apollinarian maybe. You know, the idea is that only only a part of Christ. You know. Thing. No? Well, well it kind of you can you can consider it a mixture mixture of both but it does make sense considering again you had many originists at the time that their christology resembled nestorius much closer than compared to um you know severus right their, their christology was 90 percent basically in a lot of manners similar to nestorianism uh and so anatomy number 10 if anyone shall say that after the resurrection the body of the Lord was ethereal, having the form of a sphere, and that such shall be the bodies of all after the resurrection. So this is the nonsensical, idiotic sphere stuff. And that after the Lord himself shall have rejected his true body, and after the others who rise shall have rejected theirs, the nature of their body shall be annihilated. Let him be anathema. So you see this kind of Mormonism, uh, proto-Mormonism in origin. We're just going to become spheres, bro. We're just going to become... <laughs> planets man this is something you find in many places you know a lot of people want to you know show god in an immaterial sense or you know generic deities they will often you know make it like an orb of energy or something like this if, if there's a lot of influence for these representations of god um i think even if you look at the um, divine comedy by dante it's like 
you know, a sphere surrounded by um, different circles. So you, you you have this idea that is that is you know is stuck. Somewhere. Yeah, these are just Hellenic assumptions that that there's some uh, higher level of perfection relating to circles and spheres over anything that it contains angles or lines, right? I mean, this is Aristotle's idea of the perfection of the heavenly bodies, right? Which is not true, obviously, but it's a philosophical assumption that's a presupposition that undergirds the system, and so then you have to squeeze things into that, like you know, again, it's just it's it's not even that complicated, right? The Hellenic view has a problem with the body. Hence, they have a problem with the resurrection. Paul even says this in the New Testament, right? Greeks have a hard time with the resurrection. They think it's foolishness because they have a low view of the body. They think the body is, uh, what did Plato say, right? So I'm the same, the body is a prison. Well, I would agree that the sphere is the most perfect geometrical of all the shapes, but I wouldn't then try to take all my metaphysics and shape, push it down into geometry <laughs> because I have... Uh, something like that so that that's a typical tendency to to kind of have like you said these assumptions um and whether you agree with that or not about the geometry well i would say yeah that's different notions of what perfection is and different types of things right different categories exactly yeah you're confusing categories so geometrically it was always argued in the ancients that well why is it a more perfect or the perfect of all the geometrical bodies um, and again, you could question this as an assumption because each part of the sphere circle lies evenly upon. And so you have this kind of blending of uh, aesthetics um, and symmetry uh, is the idea of beauty and perfection. Uh, but again, if you then take metaphysics and say, well, it's got a, a you know, there's no distinction between right. the kind of categories of geometry and metaphysics and theology, then you've got a big mess, don't you? Yep. Uh, I so I believe. Um, huh? Who's uh, uh, hello? Hello? Yeah. Hello? Hello? Oh, you can hear me. Oh, wait. My camera's way down here. Uh, are, we, are we continuing with Anatomus? Yeah, I can't remember. Am I doing 11? Yes. Okay. 11. 11. If anyone shall say, anyone, that the future judgment signifies the destruction of the body and that the end of the story will be an immaterial and that will be immaterial and that there after the immaterial no nature yeah will no longer be any matter but only spirit let them be anathema by the way you keep noticing these kind of gnostic themes too of kind of the neoplatonic kind of gnostic themes uh nature i have psisis in a yeah, but anyway, you, you've got you've got this idea again. Your destruction of the bodies, bodies, but the body. Oh, say, sorry, sorry, it's psyche. Yeah, it's not yeah. nature. I'm sorry, yeah, I mixed yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I have thesis. So the idea is that, and that's why I was going at with um, um, the beatific vision, for example, is, is this belief that the body is fallen, and that only um, that it will be. Unbodied, you know, that we because the intellect is considered to be undivided in, 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 be in that way, and yeah, and again, yeah. goes to say here the experience of the eschaton is to, uh, is just uh, psychic, you know, Zeus is, uh, and that's the thing you you have if you believe that you come into unity with the essence of God. 
And again, I'm, yeah. I'm not saying that, for example, adherence to... Um, well, if the, if the sun is a second god, then there's no reason why there can't be a third, fourth, fifth gods. Like all of us. Yeah, or anybody becomes... Yeah, pretty much. The, the primordial goo, like in, uh, mm. in Genesis, you know, Evangelion. Um, but again, you know, I'm not saying that the um, people who adhere to um, the Beatific vision don't believe in the resurrection of body. I'm just saying that de facto... Uh, yeah, exactly. Since it's, it's, uh, it's yeah, it's clear. Uh -huh. and, and it doesn't necessitate, you know, the, the body, because anyway, you you will not use it because you can only will one good thing. It's is. superfluous. You could actually make an argument, given um, that sort of theology. The body's superfluous, and therefore God is actually doing a superfluous act yeah and that's why there's been you know this loss of the idea of sanctity of the body uh over time and uh being accepted uh in uh, in the churches that were more influenced by origin you know for example some people don't know but uh in the orthodox church you are not supposed to get cremated you are not supposed to get embalmed because we believe in the actual resurrection of the body. Now, that doesn't mean that bodies that are destroyed won't be raised, but that means that we need to signify that we clearly believe in the resurrection of the body, and that's why we are buried into, um, you know, wooden castles. Yeah, it's, it's in a way destroying God's creation, which is good. So it's kind of like, that's I will say that's the rationale behind uh, anti-cremationism or something like that in orthodoxy is that you're destroying something good yeah uh because it, it is created and that's the kind of like the rationale right. behind it uh it's not evil and this is a, a presupposition that even in the iconoclast controversy all of the all of this uh kind of like is matter good is matter evil has been a topic in iconoclast controversy if you don't have anything more to have you can go on with the yeah, talks and that's when i kind of finish so... this I want to mm -hmm. say that, I mean, so I, I think Father Deacon, Dr. Anais will will back me up on this. Um, I'm not an expert in ancient philosophy at all, but I've had quite a few classes in undergrad and grad school that did deal with ancient uh, and medieval philosophy. And, you know, I've read Plato. I've read a lot of Plato. I've read a lot of Aristotle, not as much as Father Deacon. I, I know Plato better than Aristotle, but... Um, there's a great section in Aristotle East and West by Dr. Bradshaw. It's uh, page 26, 27, where he talks about tendencies in the Hellenic mind. Um, I think you, we could see this uh, as pretty consistent across the board, whether it's a Plotinus or a uh, Aristotle or a Plato. I mean, we're going to see differentiations here and there between these characters, but the general attitude of the Hellenic mind is to see um, there, there being a dialectical tension. And this is going to be fundamental to understanding um, origin and the presuppositions that he adopts. So in terms of the good or the perfect or the better, being right is on a chain and there's a, there's a kind of gradations and a diminution as you come down from the monad in terms of what's good. Unity thus has a higher level or status than multiplicity, right? So differentiation is identified as multiplicity or distinction. Remember what did Plotinus say? Distinction is opposition. This is why the monad has to have a highest super beyond all classification, you know, unity that can never even be identified. It can only be kind of 
analogous, analogously related to synonyms, right? This is modal collapse. So we have being, and this is better in some ontological metaphysical sense, higher than non-being. This is the Greek chain of being, right? This is their move. Unity is preferable, better, more perfect than dyad, triad, multiplicity. Now, if you know Maximus's arguments on the Trinity, there's no primacy to unity itself, right? And multiplicity here just means a different sense of not multiple substances, but differentiation, real distinction. That's all multiplicity here means. Look at Maximus's argument about the movement from monad to dyad to triad. Rest is seen to be uh, superior to motion. Motion is a feature of the lower orders underneath the celestial spheres. The celestial spheres are perfect circles. They move in a circular motion, and therefore uh, they're a higher level of reality than we are. And ultimately the one, the monad, the unmoved mover is in perfect rest, right? So even though he is pure actuality, he possesses perfect rest according to Aristotle. Well, it's more of an it, not a he, right? Um, motion is a characteristic of what's moved by the unmoved mover, right? Um, mind superior to body. Body is a lower prison type of status. So this is a common dialectic that you will find. And I've been reading about this for 15, 20 years. It's not that it's not, this shouldn't even be controversial. It should be obvious that this is how the Hellenic mindset sees things. And what I'm saying is that when we come to the Trinity, when we come to the doctrine of man's will, when we come to the, to eschatology, anthropology, this is going to upset and go contrary to the theology of the church and the councils. And Origen is going to adopt these Hellenic presuppositions, and they're going to condition his whole system. This is all you need to understand and see, that this will condition Origen, Originism, and this is the root of why Originism is such a problem. And on top of that, scholars themselves, it's not even controversial. Gawitz has multiple sections where he says that this is the same doctrine of simplicity that Aquinas and Augustine adopt. Augustine adopts the doctrine of simplicity that Origen has. Yeah. Aquinas adopts the doctrine of simplicity that Augustine has. So there's a direct lineage from Origen, from, well, from Plotinus, Origen, Augustine, about what simplicity is. And we're going to see in a minute what that is. I'm going to give you the quotes. I'm not just saying You notice we've talked about this a million times. That, yeah, but they don't listen because they don't know what they're talking about. In those about. paradigms, they start with... Uh, several Hellenistic assumptions, yep. essentialism, you begin with the one, and unity above all things, and then you work out your system from there. But you don't see that in the Fathers. You see that uh, in order to understand the one essence of God, it always exists in the mode of persons. Persons, uh, the hypostasis, uh, the Holy Trinity, is always presented first in the order of theology. So it's an complete opposition to those projects. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead. Okay, uh, number 12, another one on unity. If anyone should say that the heavenly powers and all men and the devil and evil spirits are united with the word of God in all respect as the noose, which is by them called Christ, and which is in the form of God, and which is and which humble itself, as they say. And if anyone shall say that the kingdom of Christ shall have an end, let him be anathema. All right, this is number thirteen. Um, if anyone shall say that 
that Christ, i.e. the noose, is in no wise different from other reasonable beings, neither substantially nor by wisdom nor by his power and by its might over all things, but that all will be placed at the right hand of God, as well as he is that is called by them, the, blah, blah, couldn't read it, as well as he that is called by them Christ, the noose, as also they were in the feigned pre-existence of all things, let him be anathema. 14. If anyone shall say that all reasonable beings will one day be united in one, when the hypostasis as well as the number and the bodies shall have disappeared, and that the knowledge of the world to come will carry with it the ruin of worlds, the rejection of bodies is also the abolition of all names. Here's the pluralities being destructed, uh, destroyed. And that there shall be finally an identity of the hypostasis. So the one. Moreover, that in this pretended apocostasis, spirits will only continue to exist as it was feigned pre-existence, let them be anathema. So there's the first kind of apostasis that we get in kind of explanation of why um, he believes all will be saved. Um, all spirits, all human beings, all bodies um, return to the one and saved apostasis. If you believe that, yeah. you're anathema. So Is it, uh, finally an identity of the gnosis and the apostasis. So um, again, you have this return to... Uh, to the original form and like in your knowledge and in your apostasis. Now I can anticipate the objection, by the way, and we can talk about this after the anathemas. Uh, let's say somebody says, well, that's just only one type of apostasis. Like, obviously that's but we could have others that are accept, uh, acceptable. Um, so let's just keep that on the back burner, and then we'll talk about yeah, why yeah. that's uh, impossible. Mm -hmm. And the final answer, Snick, you can, I think it's yours, yeah? Yeah. Uh, if anyone shall say that the life of the spirit uh, should be like, um, should be like to the life which was in the beginning, while yet the spirits had not come down and fallen, so that the end and the beginning shall be alike, and that the uh, and that the end shall be the true measure of the beginning. Let be and let it be anathema. So yeah, that's uh, um, right. that's a good summary of apocatastasis. Um, oh, that... by the way, let me add too because there is an edict given from the Council of Constantinople uh, and five forty three that will actually stay. So this is just to kind of answer, and then we can get in more detail about, well, what if that's just that type of apostasis? I think the edict from the Council of Constantinople here uh, makes it quite clear. Whoever says or thinks that the punishment of demons and the wicked will not be eternal, let him be anathema. Mm -hmm. So that pretty much covers every possible type of apostasis theory you could have. Right, so should we get into... Apocatastasis itself, or to St. Maximus's and Origin's view? Uh, i just like to add, mm -hmm. um, you know, about the Apocatastasis and the ideas that there are different Apocatastasis and that some are not condemned. Uh, there's another set of anathema in this council uh, that are the anathema of, uh, of Emperor Justinian. Yes. Uh, and the ninth one says um, sensibly 
what uh, what Father Deconductor Ananias said. If anyone should say or think that the punishment of demons and of impious men is only temporary and will one day have, a, have an end, and that restoration, apocatastasis, will take place of demons and of impious men, let him be anathema, anathema to origin, and to that Adamantius, which is a surname of origin. Um, yeah, I, think, Nick, I forgot to mention that that was actually... Uh... The There's a couple uh, points I want to bring in here that, again, remember his apocatastasis relates to his uh, pre-existent soul doctrine. So um, in Origen's doctrine of sin, there's varying degrees due to distinctions in the created order. The cause of diversity among creatures, beings, is shown to be derived from the unfairness on the part of the dispo not on the uh, uh, part of the disposer, but according to their own actions. These actions inhibit uh, varying degrees of earnestness or laxity according to the goodness or badness of each. Now, since the world is so varied, very varied, and comprises a diversity of beings, what else can we assign to the cause of its existence except the diversity of the fall? So, the reason that there's diversity, the reason that there's movement away from the one. Uh, is because beings willed to move their gaze away from the one and then they fell into a bodily existence. There would be no diversity because multiplicity, diversity, distinctions are viewed as a lesser ontological status. And that's, uh, so this is on first principles one, uh, one book, uh, book one, section eight, uh, book one, section eight, one and two, book two, section one and one, book two, section nine and two. And you'll see that he consistently has this dialectical opposition of uh, the pre-existent state of unity and then the fall into multiplicity. Uh, yep. And on the topic of apocatasis, I think a good way to kind of summarize, like, how does he even come to this kind of view? I think because I'm going to give like the uh, nature in person. Exactly. And. I kind of want to give the basic rundown of how I see how I see this. So we have to again bear in mind that I will even add that your doctrine on simplicity affects your view on the afterlife because of the um, distinction as opposition view. Mm -hmm. uh, he has this kind of dialectical view of free will, where good and evil are opposites; that they both exist as opposites, and free will is defined as good versus evil so if you miss either good or evil if you don't have one of those things you don't have free will and in heaven you have free will he will have to say and so if you can in the afterlife have uh that free will evil has to exist which is why you can fall from uh fall from the good at that afterlife so this all of these doctrines are in a way connected with each other uh the simplicity doctrine the free will doctrine and the afterlife, all of these kind of uh, are connected. So if you basically, like if he had our view of divine simplicity, orthodox view of divine simplicity, it will be very difficult for him to have the universalist views that he has, right? Or the views of free will that he has. And that's another aspect. And in terms of other epicotestasis, we will only have to look at St. Maximus the Confessor, um, where there is a universal restoration of all nature but that does not mean that all persons are restored. They are restored in the sense that their natures are restored and on the way that they live their lives. So a good analogy will be someone who lived their entire life hating God, when they reunite with God, 
what did it, what do you think is going to be happening to him? Do you think they're going to be, oh, you know, I hated you all my life, but, you know, now I'm happy. No, he's still going to hate that experience because his will, the way he lived his life, his mode of feeling is going to carry over to the next life. And whether he, whether in this life he lived a life of well-being or ill-being is going to determine his experience in the afterlife. So, yes, there is this kind of, Technically speaking, there is this kind of restoration and you can even say salvation, but the experience of that is going to be distinct, right? Mm -hmm. The experience is going to be based on how you will and how you kind of lived your life, you can say. Yeah. Uh, this is not an origin, right? This is in St. Maximus. He talks about this more in detail. Um, the way I say is kind of like the basic way, so it can be, I guess, interpreted as wrong, but that's kind of how I see it. I've, I've, I've also dealt with it more extensively in a previous video myself, but... Yeah. Um, this is, again, this distinction of the view of free will is... As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Another, another aspect of this is I forgot. The free will is not a dialectical choice between good and evil. It's just having multiple different choices. So there's this distinction as well in terms of how you view free will. Um, so if you only have good things to will in the afterlife, you still have free will because you have you can will between multiple, multiple divine energies of God. Right. And this is also why you need the distinctions between God's divine energies. If you say the, the energies are always Wait, and just, only just one and that. cannot never... Yeah, repeat the divine energies... more for the audience. One more time. <laughs> the divine, one more time. The, the divine energies have to be distinct and multiple for you to will multiple good things. If it's only one... If, like, if you're a Roman Catholic or if you're, a, I don't know, a mentally ill person you and you say the divine energy is only one and they're not distinct with each other, then you still go you still go into the originist problem, right? Because yeah, there is no thing multiple things to will. Which is one thing. So. And you don't exactly. have a free will. So this either. presupposes that the one divine energy is also also has distinctions in it. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. I mean, is, Can it, is eternal love identical to the uh, to divine providence? Right. Yeah. That's I mean, the origin is. doctrine. Origin says that 
being father is equivalent to being creator is equivalent to providence. And so not only is he eternally a father of the son, he's also eternally Lord and providential of an eternal creation. And that's because the attributes, the actions, the energies are all the same yeah. in the modal collapse doctrine. By the and, way, uh, now I mean, it says it's not even controversial. Yeah. That, that and, I mean, think of, of, think of the stupidity of this view. Like when Christ walks on water, which is, you know, an action of both of his energies, right? But, when you say Christ walks on water, is he creating the world when he's walking on water? I mean, how silly is this even? Like, who? who no, they're really distinct kind of actions. <laughs> I mean, nobody yes, but exactly. um, completely untrained, stupid people would say this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And actually, that's very interesting because, you know, this argument is from uh, St. Basil, letter 38, that is uh, attributed to St. Gregory of Nyssa. So, St. Gregory of Nyssa and St. Basil, who saw origin in high regard, do not fall into this trap. So that's that's a good example of, of someone being inspired by uh, by origin, but still only taking what's good. You know, and origin summarizes a lot of great things. Um, and I'd like to uh, to uh, answer maybe an interrogation that many people have, which is to say, oh, for catechesis uh, or for church history or for whatever, we are being given origin to read. Should we read it? Um, and that's that's very interesting because if you look at some churchwaza, you will see that you have the vision of St. Basil, that is to say, oh, we can just you know, pick up what, what's good. So we so you can read it carefully. Um, and there's a vision of, of St. Hilary, for example, for Tertullian, he would say, oh, Tertullian said great things, but I don't, I don't want to quote him. Um, I think we should, uh, we should, we should probably um, not be afraid of reading some of origin works, but be extremely careful and, well, and, and cross-check it and so on. Yeah, so I mean, that's why we, yeah, it is a good. It summarizes a lot of good things. Before you read Origin, read the Church Fathers. Is what I will say, and that's it. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. so uh, like in the shaft set, you have uh, De Principis, right? You have On First Principles, and you can see very quickly within the first few chapters, um, ch Book One, uh, Chapter Five, Six, Seven. He gives his doctrine of simplicity, uh, and it's very. <laughs> clear very very concise very um it's, it's not really in dispute what he thinks is going on right the father is identical to this unknowable essence uh the words that we use of god are essentially uh, synonyms and so this is called the identity thesis right this is what we mean by absolute divine simplicity and as galwitz says this doctrine goes on into uh, Augustine and Aquinas, they both adopt the same doctrine of simplicity. So what are the kind of like metaphysical implications of this doctrine? Well, some of the things that you could point out is that if this is a modal collapse or a big equal sign, then really all of the names that we name of God are just naming the same thing and they don't really have any clear difference between them. There's not a real, there's only a conceptual distinction between uh, eternal love and, uh, you know, providence, right? So what applies to God eternally is also applicable to God in terms of creation and the created order. So either God's eternality is created, which doesn't make any sense, or the created order is an eternal creation, right? Because you've, you've made them all synonymous, right? So creation is not ex nihilo at a point in time. It's eternal, right? This is why he equates fatherhood with essence, fatherhood with eternity, fatherhood with providence. They're all the same. They all mean the same thing. They're, they're predicates of one identical thing, right? All of those names are just naming one identical thing. 
And for him, the distinctions, and I think it's uh, it's uh, Barnes or uh, Galwitz has a whole discussion of katapanoia in origin. And katapanoia is the idea of conceptual distinctions. And in the church fathers, there's both, right? So just because you make a conceptual distinction doesn't mean it's an only a conceptual distinction. You can have something that's conceptual and real or only conceptual and not real. There's a lot of different possibilities. And then into the Middle Ages, there's a whole theory of different notions of distinctions that occur, especially in the, amongst the scholastics. Bradshaw has a really lengthy essay on, just on ca, the, the catapanoia distinctions in the Middle Ages. Uh, but the Orthodox view is, uh, if, if you look back at St. Basil, is just simply that you can have something that's a mental distinction that also corresponds to a real distinction in reality. So when we say that there's a distinction between these attributes, it doesn't mean it's only conceptual or logical or virtual, right? That's the Thomistic view, that they're not real, right? They are real distinctions because they're really distinct energies. There's real distinctions between the Father and the Son, right? The distinctions between the hypostases are not strictly katapanoia. They're katapanoia and real. Um, maybe we should address one criticism, you know, when... Uh, oftentimes when you attack the idea of apocatastasis, people bring up St. Gregory of Nyssa. And we would say that um, it was an error. We would say that St. Maximus the Confessor uh, explained to what, in what sense we can understand it. Um, so uh, what, what would you say if someone brought up uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa? Well, first, the first thing I will say is that to know what is true doctrine, we, we talked about this in the stream against Roman Catholicism, is that you need the universality, you need consensus of that doctrine, and you need uh, all of the patriarchs to kind of agree on this doctrine. And first of all, in terms of consensus, one church father is not consensus. I mean, even if you take like the worst possible scenario, there's only one church. You can maybe you can find. Let me give for give them a freebie and give them two, three church fathers, two, three saints that let's say hypothetically believe in universalism. That's still not consensus. Okay, that is still not consensus. So uh, it's a weak argument. We had church fathers that. Uh, had, I mean, you could say for example, Saint Augustine, obviously, uh, in terms of filioque and and whatnot. Uh, I mean, for example, St. Cyril of Alexandria uses Mia Fis's formula, and it is used in the Orthodox Church, but is it used as if, like, regularly? Uh, no, the Diophysite formula has more precedence, right? But we still don't... Uh, so in general, like, the Church Fathers, just one Church Father saying something doesn't mean that the entire Church... So we don't believe in, like, one Church Father is magically infallible. So even in that case... Uh, and, and in terms of like whether he really believes in it, again, I haven't read that kind of stuff. I'm not going to make a comment. So you guys know it better than me, but I've heard some people kind of contest that claim. I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, what do you guys have to say about are that? we going to just pick every church father's differing canon for several centuries? Of course not. Yes. Right. You, you know what? It, it reminds me of the, the Protestant modus operandi. Yeah. That you start with yourself, which is the very essence of heresy. So it's not the consensus and what's been received. But let me start with myself and then I'll go through and pick the church fathers that I want to build a case. This yeah. is kind of secular philosophy and academia works. Oh, I'll go through the literature and then I'll make my case. Um, that's not how we work in orthodoxy. It's what's received. It's consensus. 
that's the councils. So um, if that could be shown, and uh, like you said, David, uh, let's leave that up to uh, more of the experts um, on Gregor Nyssa to actually explain what he means there. But let's say he, he does, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what church fathers you can find that say that's not how we operate. Yeah, yeah, we would say that, uh, you know, as demonstrated by letter 38, um, St. Gregory of Nyssa doesn't espouse the entire system. Uh, yeah, good point. There might be some remnants here and there. And even then, we have St. Maximus that explains that to an extent we can believe uh, in, in a regeneration, in a return to, to a previous state, uh, which is um, the general recapitulation of bodies, but not, you know, origins greater reset. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. The great reset of origin. There's oh. a couple things I want to read here. So uh, if you look at um, this is this is relevant and enlightening. Um, let me see the citations here. Let's see. In Plotinian Neoplatonism, um, the idea that the one has no choice to produce either the beings that emanate from it or not. It was rather a situation that it is good. The it, the one. And it has to overflow the bounds of its divine goodness to produce the manifold of creation. So due to this definition of simplicity, there's not really any distinctions from the one since the one's being, activity, and will are wholly indistinguishable. And this is in Plotinus and the Aeneids 166. In Origenism, we have a similar compulsion that occurs with two explicit manners. One is on the theological and other on the uh, eschatological level god being the father is wholly indistinguishable from being creator therefore just as he always begot a son so he always willed the creation on the eschatological level the level at the level of human free choice the originist doctrine of apocatastasis excludes any notion of continued free, creaturely free will unless of course there is the possibility of recurring and successive falls in the eschaton which means, of course, that free will is defined dialectically as the opposition between good and evil. So you get this, obviously, then that's the, the, the end result, and that's why you can't adopt this system. And the whole system is predicated on the idea that beings as multiplicity are opposed to the one and its simplicity. And that's Aeneid 5, uh, 1, 5. Uh, and this is critiqued in uh, Lasky, uh, Mystical Theology, page 30. Uh, you can go back to, uh, so in the Wallace book, page 91 to 104 in the Wallace book on Neoplatonism. And let me just point out how, what Wallace says. On the Platonic side, later Neoplatonist uh, doctrine of the immortality of the soul referred to its subtle astral body. This seemed to offer hope of bringing, bridging the gulf between Christianity and Neoplatonism. But the contrast between the body and man's gross terrestrial body was still too sharp, too sharply drawn by pagans to be acceptable to Christian orthodoxy. And while sending, while uh, uh, while a standing temptation to the Platonizing thinkers, the doctrine was ultimately condemned as originistic at the council, at the Fifth Ecumenical Council. The doctrine of the divine incarnation, in its Christian form, was unacceptable to. Uh, Neo Orthodox Neoplatonism, not Orthodox, but the, the strict Neoplatonist thinkers, not the Orthodox thinkers, the Neoplatonist thinkers, on many grounds. For one, Porphyry thought that 
in regard to Jesus as a righteous man, he could be admitted into heaven because of his virtue. But uh, this, it was impossible for him to conceive of the possibility of the one entering into time and space, right? The one can't become God, become man and enter into time and space. That was, that's impossible to what the one is, right? And so uh, this seems to be a concern. Um, and then he goes on to say that the, thus the Platonist repugnance toward the idea of a divine union with an unclean fleshly body was the crucial departure here. So it's not just a matter of the one and the many and all that stuff. That's, that's relevant here in terms of the Platonic Hellenic assumptions. But remember, it also undercuts the incarnation. And that's why I'm going to call out Phaser because Phaser says, With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. That he can argue from the Neoplatonic doctrine of God that the one that we recognize in natural theology is outside of time and space, unchangeable, and can't enter into time and space, or else he would be subject to change. So that means that Dr. Fazer's Thomistic philosophy undercuts, his Neoplatonic Thomistic philosophy undercuts the Incarnation. Do you see what I'm getting at here, right? In other words, the incarnation is really impossible if you have these presuppositions. Yeah, how can there be a unity of the two natures? Exactly. If, if you have this view, we can't. And every time uh, there's so a heretic, a right? Group. So all of the councils are arguing Hellenic dialectics. That's the key mm -hmm. to all the councils, whether it's Marcion. By the way, uh, Galwitz points out that the simplicity doctrine of Marcion is absolute. The good God is the God of the New Testament, the God of love. He's the nice God. <laughs> he actually has a doctrine of simplicity that passes on into probably origin, according to Galwitz. So, I mean, again, why, why does Marcion think that? Because there's a dialectical tension between the mean God of the Old Testament and the nice God of the New. It's dualism. Yep. And uh, if you don't have any more comments, I want to kind of also make some additions in regarding to icons now this might be strange to some people what does origin have to do with icons well first off um origin is an iconoclast uh let me quote origin was an iconoclast he likewise rejects without distinction every depiction of the divine this includes the son of god he says this in contrast selsum tree uh, and the principis uh so he is an iconoclast of his time but there's something even more to it his presuppositions have carried over to the iconoclastic presuppositions. Now, I will. Uh, this is especially told in Father Ambrosius Iacalis's book, 
Images of the Divine, the Theology of Icons at the Seventh Ecumenical Council. And he points out throughout the book that there is this kind of originistic presupposition in the iconoclasts. And this is due to various definitions. So first of all, the lack of a distinction between person, nature, energy, right? These are not distinguished in that system. So that's one of the issues. And because of a lack of a distinction, there is a uh, different understanding of form Whereas he points out that the Pauline understanding of form refers to nature or substance, their understanding of form is something else. So, for example, their understanding of icon is originistic. They will say that icon and the thing that is the, the thing that's representing and the thing being represented is actually considered kind of the same thing. That's why they will say that the Eucharist is an icon, right? The iconoclast will say the Eucharist is an icon, but it's also the body and blood of Christ. So. It is an icon representing Christ. It is also the Christ himself. Um, another aspect is that the, the understanding of uh, people in heaven becoming intelligible, right? This kind of uh, people becoming intelligible. And uh, let me get the exact understanding. Uh, Become, like becoming yeah. angels. Yeah. For the iconoclast, it is inconceivable that one shall transfer intelligibles or intelligible reality to the sensible world and thus make them accessible to the uninitiated and profane. And so in this understanding, because of this, uh, we cannot even depict the intelligibles. And because when we die, we become intelligible. The saints become intelligibles. You cannot depict the saints. You cannot depict Christ. You cannot depict any of this. And so this is kind of the originistic presupposition that iconoclasts have. And, um, and I do kind of plan on making this video on, on iconography and kind of more extensively, but there is an originistic understanding uh, presupposition behind iconoclasm. So and it's not just the fifth or the sixth council that originism was a headache. Even in the seventh council, originism was a headache. Yeah, and right. some people, he points out that iconify some of them even do un understand this or that. Yes, this we're dealing with originism. We're dealing with a different form of originism. And, uh, and again, another thing is about like the lack of a diversity of energies. All of this kind of stuff is dealt with the issue of icons. So when you look at it, and this is kind of what I want to summarize it with, when you look at originism, everything in the seven ecumenical councils, everything that is ecumenical councils deal with, and I will even say the eighth and the ninth, right? Uh, because of hesychasm, originism is against it. Uh, Anti-filioque origin is... You look at all of these councils, everything goes contrary to what Origen believed. And Origen, as we said before, really believes what Neoplatonism says <laughs> for him to believe. So in general, to be an Originist is not to deny just the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh. It's really to deny Christian truth in general. If you're an Originist, if you're defending Origen, you're not just defending some person. You are attacking an entire Christian system. And so to be an originist is to deny being a Christian is what I will kind of like to summarize this with and why this is kind of like a fatal issue for us to deal with because this is so popular uh, for yeah. very bad reasons. As reasons as I explained, because people want to believe in heretical doctrines such as evolution and all of that kind of stuff. So I want to say uh, if we look at some of the summations of the Neoplatonic and the origin-based systems, um, you get dialectics of opposition. Divine essence is defined as simplicity in a definitional sense, in an identity thesis sense. 
beings uh, in terms of their multiplicity are in a lower status and they are opposed to the one and its simplicity. That is uh, Aeneid 5.1.5. Beings are in a sense evil and therefore are opposed to good. And that is, uh, th that's the same section. Uh, and then in first principles, this is origin 1.8.1. Multiplicity and composition are evil, and simplicity and unity are the higher good. The good, paradoxically, is always static, solitary, circumscribable, and a unitary principle. Remember what I just showed you in that chart of the dialectic, right, that Bradshaw talks about? It's very, very common ideas here. But since multiplicity is related to evil, uh, free choice relates to evil, as we've seen. Uh, neither Origen nor Plotinus... Uh, has a one that chooses to create by his will rather since multiplicity arises as a choice of the beings leaving their stasis and perfect unity with the one. There is no distinction between the principle of distinction of multiplicity, or excuse me, between the principle of distinction of multiplicity and the principle of opposition. Thus, you get an equation where opposition equals distinction, as we saw from in the Aeneids. This remains a common formula to Neoplatonic, Origenist, and other heretical groups. Now, this should be uh, this can be summarized again as in the Plotinian Neoplatonism, beings are logically evil, both because they move and because they are multiple. In Originism, this position is mitigated for beings in the primordial Hinad could be construed as evil because multiple, uh, but good because they are fixed in stasis around the One. Before the fall, they were in contemplation of the One. These fixed beings, however, uh, could also choose to leave that status and then fall into being uh, creatures in a bodily existence. So that's the problem here is that we have all of these assumptions of Platonism, Neoplatonism, simplicity, right? And that's what's completely destructive to the entire Christian enterprise in terms of biblical theology and what's revealed in scripture. So it's, it's a completely foreign pagan system it has nothing to do with Christianity. It's utterly, by the way, ridiculous. Uh, I'll put this little chart. If I can get this to show up here, let me see. I'm trying to make this chart come on the screen here. You guys can go ahead and keep talking. Um, I, yes, snack, go ahead. And then I'll, I'll finish up. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd have a comment, um, that many people might be asking themselves why, is there pushes to rehabilitate origin? Mm -hmm. Why is it so popular today? And, and the answer is that there's a few reasons, actually. First of all, uh, origin is very famous among the Protestants because it allows them to have an authority that is early, that goes against tradition. Mm -hmm. Good point. It allows, um, it allows people at large to erode the authority of the Fifth Council. And the Fifth Council is especially important. If you, if you look at the authority of the Fifth Council, only the Orthodox can really fully adhere to it. Mm -hmm. The Council during which Pope Vigilius is deposed, he admits that he uh, followed the um, uh, heretical five, uh, uh, three chapters. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a Council during which he specifically said that Augustine need to be read according to his re uh, retraction, that we should be uh, careful about this. It's, uh, it's a council where you had the uh, emperor having an important place. So for a lot of the secularists, uh, people want to um, make a complete split. They, they would point to, to this as the emperor overstepping. Um, 
So the Fifth Council is crucial. It's also, you know, important in um, Oriental Orthodox, um, in the Oriental Orthodox debate, because it will say that the Fifth Council uh, actually disproves the authority of Chalcedon because it came after. No, the Fifth Council actually gives a proper reading of Chalcedon. So it it varies. This council is a key, and eroding it is uh, is deleterious. Uh, then you have other things. Uh, academia loves origin because it, it erodes tradition. Protestant loves origin because it erodes tradition. Um, it's also very good for ecumenism because origin would be this um, universal figure who brings a universal understanding of soteriology. If you think about it, apocatastasis is just the soteriology of ecumenism. It's a soteriology of, oh, we don't actually care so much. Everybody's going to be saved at the end. Everybody's nice. Everybody's good. So um, that's why it's being uh, is being used uh, quite a bit. I don't know if you have comments on this, but a lot of people are complaining. And this video was made because we actually had complaints about um, people shilling for origin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of. Uh, if no one else has a comment, Father Deacon, do you have any comments? Oh, I just wanted to make a few arguments and comments um, about apostasis. I don't know if that's taken it off um, track again. Well, let me, can I, uh, before you do that, right, can yeah, I, Jay, can, why don't you do yeah, that let me run I'll... through. So this chart's really good to kind of summarize what the issues at play are. And if you look on the left, so we look at origin system um, in terms of simplicity, God is one, simple, and immutable. Therefore, God's goodness equals his immutability. God is not, therefore, free to create or to not create. In the Augustinian scheme, God is one and simple and immutable, and to uh, be true is to be, and to be is to be great. Ergo, to be true is to be great. God's will is his essence, but he still is free in some, somehow to create or not to create, though this does not necessarily follow from the premise. In St. Maximus, God is one and simple, but not in the sense that the energies or attributes of God are identical. Hence, he does not hold to the identity thesis of origin. Uh, God's, uh, uh, his attributes equal each other only in the sense that they are equally divine. God is able to create because his will is not the same thing as his essence. And so we see that the people who, like Roman Catholics, identify God's actions as all identical and the same and one are basically just making the originist argument. If we look at the notion of uh, uh, stasis, his doctrine of creation, we get stasis. The pre-existent souls are able to choose the fall or not to fall. This is origin, remember. And the, this choice is dialectically defined as a choice between good and evil. In the uh, Genesis account of Augustine, so uh, this would be like origin's doctrine of genesis is stasis augustine's doctrine of genesis souls are created but they're able to choose between good and evil in maximus's doctrine souls do not pre-exist and they're able to choose from several alternatives but these are not necessarily evil so we have the possibility of multiple goods to be willed and so you'll notice that maximus's doctrine is a key departure not just from origin but also from augustine who still retains somewhat of a dialectical definition of free will, even though he wants to admit free will. In Kinesis over here with origin, as God is good and immutable and simple, any multiplicity and, no, uh, and motion are inherently evil. So the created order is really identical to or related to whatever is lower in being, lower on the chain, and in some sense evil. In Augustine, Kinesis, 
involves uh, two foci, right? The doctrine of sin, right? And the doctrine of conversion. And the choice in either case is dialectically defined, right? Because it's what we saw here, that souls are created but able to choose between good and evil. So he still has the dialectical notion of free will here. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. In Maximus, this involves two different foci. Man is able to choose freely amongst several goods by nature, and the fall dialectically conditions all choices in this world, but this moral dilemma is not the natural condition of choice, right? So there's a difference between the state of man's will, the mode of man's will, in the sense of what was proper to him in the garden, and then after the fall, the post-lapsarian process is not identical to the pre-lapsarian process. The nature is the same. But we're not going to, for example, in the eschaton, have a choice between good and evil. Whereas after the fall, we do have that choice. So in the eschaton, it'll be more like it was in Eden, except it'll be better because there won't be the possibility of choosing evil. For origin, uh, Genesis, uh, the fall into diversity and materiality. So the fall of man in Genesis is out of unity and stasis into diversity, materiality, and motion. These stupid Hellenic dialectics are not part of our theology. Um, for Augustine, uh, in the eschatological presence of God's absolute simplicity, so there's a kind of beatific vision doctrine here in Augustine where there's an absolute simplicity where man is not able to choose for there are no real multiple objects to choose from. The beatific vision means, as for example Aquinas says, the intellect is fully satiated with the essence of God and therefore would never choose to will anything different. There's nothing else to will because there's no real multiplicity in the eschaton. So you don't have free will anymore. In the eschaton, uh, in terms of Saint uh, Maximus, the saints are able to choose amongst multiple equal goods. And so there has to be a reality to the multiplicity of things to will, to, to will, not just creatures, but also different, different things to will in the sense of God. Maximus says that in the uh, eschaton, we will be willing and seeing and perceiving the many logi. So uh, if you don't believe that the logi are distinct and the logi are energies, then you're not perceiving and willing different things. So this chart Excellent. is helpful. Uh, it kind of just lays it all out in a, in a pretty clear way what the different systems are here. And as Orthodox, obviously, we uh, will go in the direction of the sixth and seventh council, right? The direction of St. Maximus. And we don't adopt all of these presuppositions of Augustine, even though we uh, think Augustine is a saint. Uh, that doesn't mean, just like with Gregory of Nyssa, we don't believe every single thing he says.
let me Jay, let me pick up on that. It's really good. Uh, kind of the points I wanted to make uh, concerning the nature of will on the orthodox understanding. And as David had brought up and St. Maximus talks about as well, the choices that we make based on what will actually is forms our character. And in the eschaton, how we'll experience that. I know, David, you talked about that. And so in light of that, in light of what Jay just had here on the chart, I'd like to ask people, because a lot of people say that, well, wouldn't it be just great, though? Can we just hope uh, God would be so good that in the end, all would be uh, restored and saved? I think that's a huge presumption. My question would be, by any means necessary. So do the ends justify the means? In order to get to that, you would have to ha either destroy free will or pervert the very nation, a notion of will itself as exemplified um, in the chart here. So I actually make an argument that that's just a, an unfounded assumption that that would be better. In fact, I would argue from all the evidence that we had that if God did something like that, that would be much worse than if all were saved. Yeah. I mean, if all if, if all were saved, that would be much worse than if actually um, some experience damnation based on the choices they make, forming their characters uh, to experience uh, the eschaton and God's glory, um, either as you know eternal torment or uh, eternal bliss. So again, when you start to work out these details and you start to question your paradigms, uh, you start to realize that these have implications that would actually, and it's funny because people will always say, well, I don't want to worship a God that, you know, allows people to go to hell. Why don't we just turn it back? I don't want to worship a God that would have to do the stuff that he would do to save everybody. Like that seems like a, mm -hmm. a terrible God. Like I've, mm -hmm. I will also add, I mean, first of all, in Scripture, it is said that First uh, Timothy 2, 4, that God wants everyone to be saved to come to the knowledge of truth. But there's a couple of problems if we go with the originistic interpretation, the universalist interpretation. Number one, I will say is that this is monophylite because you're basically, if everyone is going to be saved because God wants everyone to be saved, if that's the argument, that's a monophylite argument. And that's a... Um, I think monistic argument, uh, I, I forgot the exact term of it, but I think it's monist, yeah, I think monistic argument because we will say, for example, let's say that, yeah, as you said, let's say that God just handpicks everyone and puts them in heaven. Uh, first of all, someone, again, with the previous example I gave, someone who lived his life, who built in his life to hate God, do you think he's going to enjoy God's presence uh, when he like experiences, experiences it in full? He won't. It's actually going to be much worse for him. That, like, it, ironically, hell will be better for him. It's a better experience for him because he will experience something much, much worse. There's, and there's a problem with that. Too, yeah. if, if we take the very, and I'm not going to name it because I don't want to be crude or anything like that, but all of you can have examples in your mind of the very worst type of people. Um, you're saying that's good, that that they would actually be able to uh, 
participate in paradise the same way and be restored. Um, there's again, it, mm-hmm. it's all to emphasize in order to accomplish what you think would good be good that all were saved would enable would allow and um, imply certain evils is mm-hmm. my argument. Um, and in fact, do you know that some of uh, a lot of the holy elders and fathers talk about even if that were true, apostasis, you should never believe it ever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's destructive to it destroys your motivation to work your uh, salvation out in fear and trembling. And some people might say, well, can't we can't we hope for and I used to think that, but then I was thinking, look, I think we could desire that all be, could be saved or would be saved like God does, but to hope against dogma seems strange, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, it I is. just, I just hope that there is no, I imagine. I, 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 I hope, hope I hope the no Bible is wrong. Yeah. I hope there is no <laughs> resurrection, right? Uh, you can't hope against dogma. I think you could have a desire like God does. I have a desire that all be saved, but we know that all won't be saved mm-hmm. in order to actually achieve that. You would create far more evil um, than mm-hmm. if you didn't. Yeah. That's and like, argument. and the divine will will have to override the human will in the eschaton because everyone's, you know, uh, for them to be saved, right? And this will also imply in Christology, then Christ's divine uh, will have to overpower by force and subordinate the human will, yes. thus ending in monophilitism, right? So the doctrine, so the Sixth Ecumenical Council is dealing with this issue as well. So it's not just Christology. It's also about the afterlife. It's also about eschatology when it's dealing with these issues. And this is... And more reasons are the reasons why this is kind of untenable and impossible, I will say. Yeah, and, and that's also a big problem, you know, again, in regard to Genesis, because one of the ways to solve the problem of evil, you know, why uh, why is there evil in the world, you know, uh, even though God is uh, omnipotent, is that we chose this evil because we had the opportunity to choose it. And if God, override, uh, you know, had destroy this opportunity, this free will in human to choose it, it would have destroyed a part of the image and likeness of God which he created. So it would have been more evil for us not to yes. have the choice of picking up, you know, the apple and biting it, uh, the fruit and biting it. Um, because because there will be no theosis at the end of the exactly. day. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a denial of theosis, that's a denial of Genesis, that's a denial of, of the whole system we live in, you know, the entire point of Christianity is to to solve this fall, and here you are in a system which cannot even accept it. Oh, Jv can't hear you. I'd like to add too that if we read the Synodic on okay. Orthodoxy, this is yet another uh, product of the condemnation of these errors. So again, it's not just, you know, fifth and sixth council, which are very important, but it's not just uh, the seventh synod mentioning origin, the synodicon, which is supposed to be, you know, read throughout the church. A lot of times the bishops uh, will, will still read it. It says to those who profess piety yet shamelessly or rather impiously to introduce into the Orthodox Catholic Church, the ungodly doctrines of the Greeks concerning the souls of men 
heaven and earth and the rest of creation anathema. All right, so this is originism. To them who prefer the foolish wisdom of secular philosophers and follow its proponents and who accept the metempsychosis or the transmigration of souls or that like the brute animals that the soul is destroyed into parts and in nothingness or who deny the resurrection and the judgment and the final recompense, right, this is originism, uh, anathema. To those who dogma, dogmatize the doctrine of the ideas, or excuse me, that matter and the ideas are without beginning or co-eternal with God, this is originism, Platonism, the creator of all, right, the denial of the uh, free ex nihilo creation, then uh, they are anathema, right? And so to those who maintain that the wise men of the Greeks and the foremost heresiarchs who were put anathema by anathema, under anathema by the seven councils and by the fathers set forth as aliens to the Catholic Church because of the adulterations and loathsome superabundance of the error of their teachings, yet they are exceedingly more excellent. And it goes on to say anathema, right? So if you prefer Plotinus and the philosophers to the judgment of the councils and the condemnation, and it specifies what doctrines it's condemning, you're anathema. And let's add as well uh, that in the Synodicon, you also have the rejection of those who, uh, who teach that the Son is autotheos, right? Who don't believe that the father essentially and hypostatically, right? This is, and this is, uh, relates to originism because origin, as we said, has a weird contradictory doctrine of the father and the son as autotheos as Barnes, as Barnes notes. So what do we say to people who deny the Nicene Creed that the father both, uh, hypostatically and essentially, right? Generates. Well, it's anathema. So anyone who's telling you the, the Calvinist doctrine of autotheos, and even if they don't even realize that it's a Calvinist doctrine, uh, you'll notice what does the, the Synodagon say, right? The Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit proceeds out of the Father essentially and hypostatically, as Christ says in the Gospel. So the Father communicates. It's impossible that the Father could generate an hypostasis without a nature. Yeah, and, and it kind of goes back to like you mentioned. Uh, he says the father and the son are autotheos, which is like, wait, bro, you said he's created. Now you say autotheos. Like, what's going on with your mind? Like, are you? <laughs> is there well, a psychological historianism right? going on there? That's why it's polytheism. <laughs> I mean, remember, origin is attributing to creation eternality. Right? There's a cyclical yeah. view of, of creation because of Platonism here. Mm hmm. And that's because there's yeah. not a distinction between the, the types of acts in God. There's no difference yeah. between generating a son and creating the world. They're both eternal actions. And I kind of want to make a small comment because, because there, there's going to be people that's going to say, well, aren't the church fathers Platonists? And as well, the, thing, the distinction is a very subtle but a very important distinction. The church fathers, you could say, use these concepts to explain Christian truths or what origin does is substitute Christian truths with Platonic concepts. So there's a right. huge difference between what's going on. Like, I mean, if I said, like, if, like, let's say I'm Turkish and I mean, I am Turkish and I try to do apologetics in Turkish and I say, like, what's a. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, what's the Turkish for the word? Kalam. If I say Christ, kalam, am I, say, am I saying Christ is the kalam of kalam philosophy in Islam? Obviously not. It's the same term, but the concept behind the term is obviously different. It's, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. And so what Origen is doing again is he's substituting Christian truths with Neoplatonic falsehood and is promoting Neoplatonic falsehood and saying it's Christian truth, which it isn't. It isn't Christian. And so that's what's that's the difference between what the church fathers do and what Origen does. It's not just because they use, I mean, it's, first of all, Like they use, they speak the Greek language and they use these concepts, but uh, these words, but they don't mean the same concept, obviously. So there's a huge difference there. If you don't have anything to add, should oh, we go to well, questions? I'll, I'll, I'll mention too. Uh, I think a lot mm -hmm. of people don't realize when they discuss this subject that I mean, Maximus wrote two whole books uh, about disputing the problems. And refuting the problems in originism so the ambigua not all of them but many of them are dealing with originist problems and and one of those problems is of course the eschaton in terms of beings uh in um stasis or in motion uh and so as you as many of you probably know maximus teaches that we are in ever moving rest well how could we be in ever moving rest that doesn't sound very amenable to hellenic dialectics Well, that's because we don't believe in Hellenic dialectics. And, and in, in the eschaton, the saints will transcend certain um, dialectical properties of the created order, right? And I'm using dialectic in two different sense here, right? So there's, there is at times a, a differentiation, distinction. We've, when we fell, we did enter into a, a, a dialectical problem uh, state, you could say. But in the eschaton, that will be resolved. And we won't be in a situation where we're subject to uh, the problems of dialectical opposition. And so Maximus says that the saints will have an ever-moving rest. In other words, we're not subject to dialectics. God is undividedly divided. God is one and three. God is imminent and transcendent. You see how all of these ideas are contrary to Hellenic dialectics. And that's because God transcends them. And when we participate in uncreated grace... We transcend a lot of these problems in dialectics. It doesn't mean that we cease being creatures, but it means that in the eschaton, we're not subject to these uh, Hellenic problems. And by the way, there's a whole discussion of this in Stan Eloy. Stan Eloy has a whole chapter on how uh, St. Maximus avoids the originist dialectics. Hey, speaking of dialectics, stop me, guys, if you've heard this one. Uh, David Bentley Hart makes yes. the argument that Uh, eternal, what does he do? He applies this kind of sophistry that eternal is not uh, quantitative and uh, a temporal forever, but rather qualitative. And kind of anarch 
anachronistically reads that kind of in. But I was just thinking when you're talking about that, that's another example of dialectics that, well, why? So it has to be an either or. So if qualitative, he's got right, one or three. Of, it, <laughs> turnality is qualitative. Like, why does that exclude a quantitative forever? And that's just weird. I mean, do we only get a particular amount of time in the eschaton? It's like, well, it was maximally good. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. Um, it's just such a strange thing when you start to kind of unpack this. You guys' thoughts on that? Well, one thing that's really great about um, Stan Eloy's volume one is that he has a really long section about the notion of time. And so we have a created uh, um, non-temporal reality, right? So the aeon is an important doctrine where you kind of have uh, the location of created uh, forms, created uh, angelic essences in the aeon, angelic beings in the aeon. And that's why we don't uh, equate everything that's non-temporal with God or the essence of God or divine energies. So there is a created uh, aeon, a non-temporal aeon that does come into being that is not, strictly speaking, temporal. And it's the realm of the angels, right? Lasky has a really great section on this. And this is important because this is one reason why we can apply some of the ideas of created forms or essences or higher levels of reality without collapsing those into God. That would be Platonic. That would be Platonism. And we avoid that because we still say that those things can be creatures, right? So this is, again, the doctrine of the Aeon. I've never heard anybody but Orthodox theologians even talk about the doctrine of the Aeon. This does not mean the Gnostic doctrine of Aeons. This is totally yes, different. Yeah, that's right. But it's just the non-temporal um, angelic realm, you could say. Uh, it occurred at some point in Genesis 1. Uh, and that's an important distinction to make so that we don't collapse higher uh, geometric forms or those kinds of realities into God because they're still created. Amen. By the way, uh, his section on the Aeon is page 156, 157, 158, 159. And this also allows us to have time as a created reality that's not evil. Uh, time is a good thing, but it's a kind of... Uh, uh, preparatory phase for stepping into eternity so time is like a thing that's going to help train us you could say for the eschatological reality and that avoids the the dialectic that the greeks had between uh, eternality good time bad so there's a there's a as you can see the greeks have another dialectic between being and stasis motion and change <clears throat> eternality time Time bad, eternality good. Uh, I think that St. John of Damascus also de facto refutes origin on his part, on the eons. Right, and, and I'm again, the, the aeon that Maximus is talking about is not the aeon that you get in uh, Origins Hinad and all this kind of Gnostic stuff. Um, by the way, there's a great paper I would recommend for... What about Orthodox theologians like Yanaris who... Are, are really influenced by origin. What about the the weird extreme personalism of Yanaris? Well, there's a great um, paper refuting Yanaris and pointing out the originism in Yanaris 
by Ludovicos. And Ludovicos is a well-known uh, Greek theologian. I highly recommend this paper if you want to, uh, not just David Bentley Hart, but other Orthodox famous modernist theologians like Yanaris that many people are aware of. They've also been influenced by Origen uh, in the sense of rather than collapsing nature into person, they make person this thing that is in dialectical tension with nature. Yes, I know that seems strange, but that's the move that he makes. And Ludovicos has a great critique of pointing out how uh, Yanaris is basically just falling into another version of Originism, and he even admits this. So all these modern theologians just have this obsession with trying to revive and, and make Origin palatable. Why, we don't need any of this 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 nonsense. It's it's stupid. Hellenism is foolishness, right? That doesn't mean that we can't take, as you pointed out, Father Deacon, a good argument out of a philosopher. We know St. Maximus uses Porphyry. We know St. Maximus read Plotinus. We know Dionysius has uh, similarities to Plotinus. Nobody denies that. But that doesn't mean we're going to take the presuppositions about what simplicity is, what uh, uh, dialectics mean, what free will is, and import that into our theology. That's what every heretic does. Every heretic says that the, the theology has to conform to what my stupid word concept fallacy is. By the way, that's my next video. I just got it. Um, top five ways not to be a heretic. Don't do this. Number one, have a brain. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, believe in God. <laughs> believe in God. Maybe not, not in 10. yourself. Mm -hmm. Maybe it can be top 50. <laughs> That'll be too long of a video. Number 50, don't be origin. Are we about don't done? Do we, do we want to do the... Uh, yeah, 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 let's do... Okay. Let's do, let's do Q&A if you can, or the Super Chats or whatever. That's what I was going to say, Q&A. <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, Tom Green for $5. Dire Wave, baby, have a good stream. Thank you, Tom Green. Uh, we did. In Christ, new wineskins, $40. Uh, Father blessed to Deacon Ananias, many years to Sneck, David J, and the Orthobros. Keep exposing these heresies, which the one true church combats to this day. You are warriors for Christ. We appreciate the work that you do for the Orthodox you, around the world. Thank you. God Much bless appreciated. you. God Thank you. Thanks. Shining Diamond, $3. Why do modern critics say Chrysostom and Gregory of Nyssa were originist? Well, I've never heard that about Chrysostom because he's pretty forceful about his doctrine of the eternality of hell <laughs> chrysostom was very much a hell, hellfire brimstone preacher if you've read a lot of his homilies so i've never heard that about chrysostom but as we already covered yes saint gregory of nyssa as the other cappadocians uh you know was they were influenced by origin but doesn't mean that they accepted all their origins uh all of origins presuppositions and arguments and and again in in the ambiguous same maximus actually has to deal with multiple places where um you know nyssa is talking about ideas and origin so uh, again, we don't, this should be a common rule amongst everybody. And by the way, no church, I don't care if you're Protestant, Roman Catholic, or Orthodox, there's really nobody who actually follows any single church father in everything. So this is true for everybody. <laughs> so, I mean, if you're a Roman Catholic, you don't follow Augustine in everything. You don't follow Jerome yeah. in everything, right? It, literally. So... Uh, that's, this shouldn't even really be a debate or a problem that if one of the saints has something, uh, wrong or they got some, some idea wrong. 
Nicholas David, $10. Thank you, Nicholas David. Much appreciated. Flutter, flooded basement, $5. Oh, I love that guy. Yeah. I know, from uh, Twitter. Okay. <laughs> this is fitting that most modern originists are spiritual eunuchs. Yeah, I think that is a good analogy because uh, remember that the idea, that really the force of originism in terms of like the big money and the the liberals and the modernists that want to utilize and promote originism is because of his perennialist uh, potential. And perennialism has, a, has the ability to, or perceived ability to unite all the religions and remove factionalism, mm -hmm. right? So, oh, if we just realize that, you know, Christianity is one of the many cloaks that the higher true religion wears, can't we just all get along and can't we just kind of do a higher academic, philosophical, mystical understanding of the skeletal outlines of all the true religions, right? Or all yeah, the religions. That, yeah, go ahead. Do dogma even matter? Everybody's going to heaven. We don't care. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, who well, cares about dogma? <laughs> We're all saved. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and this is something I talked with uh, or Luke Hendred of Orthodoxy first when we made the podcast. He, I made the point to him that... Uh, your theology can affect your politics. I mean, I've never seen someone who's an originist have good political views. I've never seen no, they're someone. they're always shit libs. Dude. Yeah. Always. Yeah, they're always far leftists. They're always, you know, they're, they're like one degree of separation between being an abortionist even. And I, I, they probably, most of them are abortionists, probably, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, you know, the aborted baby will be saved anyway. Well, everybody's safe. Yeah. Right, so let's, yeah. who cares? Um, all right, uh, that's all of the super chats that I see. Uh, I'll have the links to you guys' uh, Twitter and channels uh, mm -hmm. below. Anybody have any, any uh, parting comments that they want to leave us with? Uh, subscribe to me. Hello, guys. Subscribe to my channel. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say <laughs> if you want other stuff. I, I plan on making a video on, on the theology of white cast, which is why I mentioned it on, on Origin, because of its connection so if you're interested in that kind of stuff check out my channel in a couple of days maybe a week i don't know that's all i gotta say and follow my channel of course anybody else and also follow also follow father deacon ananias obviously jay and uh Snake doesn't have a youtube but you can follow him on twitter yeah actually there's a video um from the orthodox defense uh on icons as well that was uploaded today uh good introduction on theology of icons Good. And a blessed nativity to all of you. Don't forget, with the beauty of nativity comes the nativity demons. Um, so be on guard. Uh, let us all pray for each other. Uh, and uh, pray that your friends... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.